This is The Rounds Table. Welcome back to The Rounds Table, listeners. Thanks for joining us on another great show. It's Kieran Quinn, your host. I am a general internal medicine fellow in the University of Toronto. And we are joined again by the lovely and intelligent Dr. Ashley Manuk, who's a family physician in Trenton, Ontario. Dr. Manuk, thank you for coming back to the show. Thanks for having me. Well, let's jump right in, as you know we like to do. Ashley, why don't you take us through the article that you chose for this week? So this week I chose an article comparing aspirin and rivaroxaban for VTE prophylaxis after hip or knee arthroplasty. The author is uh, D.R. Anderson et al. and it was just published February 2018. So this is an extension of the EPCAT-1, now the EPCAT-2 trial. Tell us, Ashley, what is the bottom line for this randomized trial? Bottom line is that in this multi-center, double-blind randomized controlled trial of patients undergoing total hip or knee arthroplasty, after an initial five-day course of rivaroxaban, using aspirin for extended VTE prophylaxis was not significantly different than using rivaroxaban. Okay, so we're extending our choices around VTE prophylaxis following elective hip surgery. Tell us, Ashley, why did you choose this article and how does it fit into the context of the literature? Uh, Well, as you mentioned before, this study is an extension of the EPCAT-1 trial, which previously established that aspirin was a safe and effective alternative to low molecular weight heparin for VTE prophylaxis after hip replacement. And the current study is comparing aspirin head-to-head with rivaroxaban for extended VTE prophylaxis after hip and knee replacements. Now, for me, this study caught my eye because I work as a hospitalist in my community hospital, and part of my job is to manage patients on a complex continuing care unit. And many of these patients are recovering from hip replacement surgery specifically. And in our hospital, we're using rivaroxaban for extended uh, DVT prophylaxis. And I'm thinking if we were able to switch to generic aspirin, that would save healthcare dollars. It would be easier to manage, uh, for example, in patients with poor renal function. And it would be a lot simpler for patients on discharge when aspirin is so familiar and accessible to most people. Fantastic. Sounds like a really compelling rationale. So tell us, Ashley, how did they answer this study? What was the design of the study and where did it take place? This was a double-blind, randomized, non-inferiority trial. It took place in Canada uh, at 15 university-affiliated healthcare centers from January 2013 to April 2016. Now, I have a feeling this is going to be the most important component of this trial. Tell me about who were the patients in this study. The participants in this study were 3,400 patients undergoing elective unilateral hip or knee arthroplasty, either primary or revision. Patients that had a history of long-term aspirin therapy at doses less than 100 milligrams per day were included. And if you look at table one, we can see that the patient characteristics as well as the surgical approach and type of prostheses were similar between groups. So in both groups, average age was about 63, male to female ratio was approaching 50-50, and you can see that they're comparable groups. What about the exclusion criteria? Now, the key exclusion criteria were hip or lower extremity fracture during the previous three months, those people were all excluded, uh, as well as patients with metastatic cancer. And of course, any patient who was on therapeutic anticoagulation for another indication couldn't be in the study. So we're really trying to get at a group of elective hip and knee arthroplasty patients. Tell me, Ashley, what was the intervention that they were randomized to? 
So all patients, regardless of the randomization, got rivaroxaban 10 milligrams daily for five days immediately post-op. After that, patients were randomized to receive either rivaroxaban 10 milligrams daily or aspirin 81 milligrams daily for the extended prophylaxis period, which for hip replacements is 30 more days and knee replacements nine more days. And the medication was administered as an identical appearing gel capsule. So patients and practitioners were blinded. And patients who were previously taking long-term low-dose aspirin continued to take their usual dose as prescribed in addition to the assigned trial regimen. So you're telling me, Ashley, then that if a patient was on aspirin and they were randomized to either aspirin or rivaroxaban, they would continue taking their aspirin in addition to the study medication? Exactly. So if you were someone who was taking 81 milligrams of aspirin per day for some other indication, you would continue taking that as you were prescribed. And on top of that, you would be taking the trial medication, meaning either an extra dose of aspirin or rivaroxaban. And what was the primary outcome that they were measuring, Ashley? So the primary effectiveness outcome they were looking at was symptomatic venous thromboembolism confirmed by objective testing in the 90-day period after randomization. So that included pulmonary embolism or lower extremity DVT. And they were not screening for any asymptomatic individuals. So these are people with presenting with symptomatic VTE. This outcome was analyzed for non-inferiority with the minimally clinically important difference established to be 1%. Then they had a primary safety outcome, which was bleeding, either major bleeding or clinically relevant non-major bleeding during that time. And what about the secondary outcomes? Anything there? Yeah, they did report some secondary outcome measures, uh, that being death, MI, stroke, and wound infection. Okay, so what did they find? So during the 90-day follow-up period, symptomatic venous thromboembolism occurred in... 11 patients in the aspirin group, that's 0.64%, and 12 patients in the rivaroxaban group, which is 0.7%. So therefore, aspirin was found to be non-inferior to rivaroxaban, but not superior for the prevention of post-op DVT or PE. What about the counterbalancing measures with bleeding? Bleeding events were not significantly different between the two groups. And importantly, all the bleeding events occurred at the surgical site. They did not occur to patients following discharge, and most occurred within 10 days of randomization. Any interesting subgroup analyses that you wanted to talk about? Yeah, so they did do a subgroup analysis between hip replacements versus knee replacements. There was no significant difference in venous thromboembolism rates or bleeding rates between these groups. They also did some subgroup analysis between uh, patients receiving long-term aspirin versus not. So there were 855 patients receiving long-term aspirin, uh, 2,500 that weren't. There was no difference in effectiveness in either group between the two regimens, which suggests that the additional aspirin didn't add extra benefits for the prophylaxis. And there were similar bleeding rates as well between the rivaroxaban and aspirin group among patients receiving chronic aspirin therapy and those who didn't. So if we think about who this applies to, the individual who maybe has had a stent a year and a half or two years ago is on lifelong aspirin. It's, we don't need to be worried about those individuals with respect to bleeding or efficacy around the use of these medications postoperatively. 
Yes, although I should say, if you look at the absolute results, there was a suggestion of more bleeding in patients who were assigned the aspirin group, particularly those already taking aspirin, but they didn't do between group analysis between all people taking long-term aspirin versus all people who weren't. They only did the analysis between the rivaroxaban group and the aspirin group. So that wasn't formally assessed. Fair enough. So anything that you thought was of concern or limitations you wanted to talk about from this trial? Uh, so one limitation you might see is that since most bleeding occurred early after randomization, it's impossible to know whether the bleeding was related to the initial five-day course of rivaroxaban versus the trial medication or some combination. So that might have led to an overestimation of the aspirin-related bleeding. Because remember, all these patients had five days of rivaroxaban immediately after the surgery. Right. So you're posing the possibility that even though their efficacy is not inferior to each other, if aspirin was found to have a lower rate of bleeding, then you might lean towards using aspirin more often. Is that kind of the point you're trying to make? Yes, correct. Okay, But not formally assessed uh, in this trial, uh, although the potential suggestion. Okay. Anything else? Yeah, as I mentioned before, there were secondary outcomes that were specified in the study, but and the secondary outcome of death was mentioned. There was one patient in total who died, but the other secondary outcomes, the MI and wound infection and stroke, they actually weren't mentioned in the results. Now, I don't know if this means these outcomes didn't occur at all, but it's really not stated anywhere. So that's something to note. Hmm, interesting. Okay. Yeah. And then important points for me specifically, for my selfish reasons, is that these results can't necessarily be applied to my patient population as I had initially hoped. So recall, I work on a complex continuing care unit. Most of my patients are elderly. They have complicated medical histories. And in this study, the average age was 63, so fairly young to be having a hip or knee replacement. And also, most of my patients I look after are having their hips replaced post-fracture, for example, after a fall, whereas in this study, anyone who had a recent fracture was actually excluded from the study. So that's an important thing to consider if you're trying to apply this to the broad population or the population that you might be working with elderly. And one thing to note in this study as well is that uh, in table one, you see that the smoking rate in this study for both groups was below 10%, which seems to me on the low side, at least when I compare to uh, population in my community. And we know that active smoking might be something to consider when you're evaluating for venous thromboembolism risk in a post-op group. Yeah, it's a good point. I don't actually know what the demographics as far as smoking rates in people undergoing elective hip and knee surgery is. I mean, you might think that that reflects an appropriate selection bias because people might be less likely to do surgery on people who have been long-term smokers and have underlying smoking-related disease, or maybe it's just the, the population they happen to recruit. It's, a, it's an interesting point. Yeah, that's very true. And importantly, the smoking rate was equal between the two groups, and we really have no idea as to whether this you know, made any difference or not. My, my only concern for this study was that the overall event rate uh, as far as the VTEs that occurred was less than the actual minimally clinically important difference that they defined for their margin of non-inferiority. So I kind of would have liked to see more events, more VTEs to be able to really 
parse out a difference between the two if there was one that was going to exist. But if it's low in this study, it's low and that's just what it is. But that to me gives me a little bit of pause. It's true. They do specify in the study how they determined their statistical power, like how many patients they would need. Although I don't remember the exact calculation that they used. Yeah. All right. Take it home for us, Ashley. What have we learned from this EPCAT2 trial? So bottom line in this study is that aspirin may be an effective, cheap, accessible alternative to rivaroxaban for extended VTE prophylaxis following elective hip and knee replacement. Okay. Well, it's a screwdriver in my tool belt to use postoperatively on uh, on the perioperative medicine service. Definitely important stuff. So uh, we've learned something from the EPCAT too. Okay, let's move on now. I'm going to take you through the study that I chose for this week, which I hope is applicable to you, Ashley. I know you said that EPCAT 2 didn't turn out to be so applicable, but let's hope that this one is applicable to you. This one looks at missed appointments and the use of rideshare services to try to improve missed appointment rates. This was published in JAMA Internal Medicine in February of 2018. So, Kieran, what was the bottom line for this study? Well, Dr. Chayachadi uh, and their group published a prospective clinical trial of just under 800 adults who were attending appointments at a primary care physician's offices, and they compared offering a rideshare-based medical transportation service to usual care. And what they found was that the uptake of ridesharing was low and actually did not decrease missed primary care appointments overall. <sighs> That's very frustrating. So, Karen, why did you choose this article? Well, you can probably speak to this better than I can, uh, me being a hospital-based physician without an outpatient practice. But I do know, and we read a lot, that missed appointments in general are a major problem in healthcare. And this can lead to swelling wait lists for doctors because patients who are supposed to be seen aren't seen, and then they get back into the queue, and so on and so forth, it moves on. And also, revenue for physicians who are looking after these patients is lost uh, when you work in a fee-for-service type of model. Now, we know that up to 50% of patients uh, who miss appointments, at least in survey data, tells us that it's due to unreliable transportation. And sometimes this leads to the unintended consequences of a shift to more costly acute care settings like the emergency room to seek care. Recently, rideshare services like Uber and Lyft have been proposed as alternatives to non-emergency medical transportation programs because they're easy to schedule and they are generally lower cost when compared to other more formal medical transportation services that are offered. So ultimately, this study wanted to evaluate whether these services, if used for medical transportation, could lower overall rates of missed primary care appointments. Interesting. And I agree that missed appointments is obviously a huge problem. I imagine it varies somewhat depending on the practice setting or the location. So I'm interested to know you know, how the study was designed specifically, where it was, what sort of practice setting? Yeah, I think those are fundamentally critical questions. So they did this study at two academic general internal medicine practices. So those are definitely critically important points, Ashley. And so they conducted this randomized trial at two academic general internal medicine practices. And for our non-U.S. listeners, general internal medicine is also a pr form of primary care in the United States. And they did this at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. 
and specifically in lower socioeconomic areas of uh, Philadelphia and the western parts of the city uh, between October 2016 and April of 2017. And who were the participants in the study? So they included adults who were using Medicaid as their health insurance, and they targeted a high poverty area of West Philadelphia that these patients were scheduled for a specific medical issue to go to see their physician. So for example, these were not things like a routine blood pressure check or an immunization that they were receiving. It was a very specific medical problem that they were going to seek help from. Okay, I see. And what was the intervention applied to these participants? So this study involved the use of the rideshare service Lyft. And I'll just point out that Lyft did not fund the study per se. They just provided the app for scheduling uh, for those of you who might be concerned about their involvement as a private entity. The trial overall was funded by academic grants, in fact. So all patients received automated appointment phone call reminders and up to three attempts from research personnel were made when trying to, to allocate patients to uh, individual trial arms. And essentially, participants were randomized to being offered complementary ride-sharing services. That was the intervention arm. And that was done on even days of the week. Or usual care, which was the control arm, and that was done on odd days of the weekday. And this was all based on a pre-scheduled phone appointment reminder to remind patients that their appointment was coming up, which was two days before the scheduled appointment itself. Okay, so half the people got their usual reminder phone call, and then the other half had their reminder as well as being offered a ride? That's exactly right, and that occurred two days before their appointment was scheduled. Karen, what were the primary outcomes of the study? So as we sort of mentioned already, they, they wanted to look at the proportion of patients with missed appointments, and they defined missed appointments as those individuals with same-day cancellations or just good old-fashioned no-shows. Their secondary outcomes were looking at the proportion of patients who visited the emergency department within seven and also at 30 days, because as I mentioned, sometimes these missed appointments result in individuals seeking care in more costly acute care settings. Yeah, so it sounds like reasonable outcome measures to me. What were the main findings? So and they had almost 400 patients in each arm after randomization. Most patients were middle-aged women. Baseline characteristics such as distance from the physician's office, the overall illness and level of comorbidity in these individuals, uh, the specific reason for their visit, they were all balanced as you would expect in a proper randomization process. But here's where things get really interesting and a little bit disappointing. So only 32% of individuals who were offered the rideshare actually consented to use it, so just under a third. And ultimately, of the third of, of the 32% of individuals who said they would use the rideshare, only 26%, so a mere 85 of 288 people, actually used the rideshare that was free and offered to them. Interesting. So very low uptake of this no-cost service. Exactly right. And that led to an overall missed appointment rate of about 37% overall in the trial. And if you compared each arm to each other, it was you know 36.5% in those who used the rideshare or were randomized to the offering of the rideshare arm, and 36.7% in the control arm, those who were finding their own way to the doctor's office. 
As far as their secondary outcomes, there was no difference in the emergency department visits at 7 or 30 days. Interesting. So were you surprised by these results? Well, I was surprised in the sense that I had so much hope for it working because the concept, I think, was really strong and I thought it was going to be an interesting way to change the way we get patients to their appointments. But it's difficult to detect differences between the intervention and the control arm when the uptake of your intervention is so limited. You know, less than a third of individuals actually take your intervention, or in this case, use your intervention. It's kind of surprised me in the sense that I wonder why the pilot studies that they were doing to justify conducting this study didn't pick up that, that low uptake in the first place. Right. Did the researchers uh, mention in the study that they were surprised by those results or by the uptake rate? Um, not so much to say that they were surprised, but obviously they were disappointed and it was a major limitation that they highlighted. They tried to s uh, speculate a little bit as to why there was such low uptake. They thought, well, <clears throat> the median distance to the offices of the physicians was about two and a half miles, so not, not a great distance by some people's standards. And so some people might think they don't need a ride to get there. And also, apparently, West Philadelphia has a very extensive public transit system. So I guess if you're used to using the public transit system, why would you all of a sudden change your inertia and use a free rideshare service when you can just hop on the bus? Right. You can imagine that the results might be different in more of a rural community, for example, where there's not so much public transportation available. Yeah, exactly. You know, probably what it comes down to is there are far more reasons for people who miss their appointments than just a simple free transportation. <clears throat> and the other thing is, so Lyft used a new app for this trial so that individuals didn't have to have a smartphone, especially when you're dealing with a lower socioeconomic status uh, region. You just had to be able to use text messaging. But, you know, some people in the world regardless of where they're from, aren't comfortable with text messaging or technology or the idea of a rideshare service. My poor mom, for example, can barely turn on her phone. My apologies, mom. But, you know, it makes you also kind of wonder about the uptake if it was just a level of comfort with this kind of new way of doing things. Sure, that makes sense. Um, what were the main points that you took away from this article? Well, I think that <clears throat> the main learning points here are that Offering a free rideshare-based transportation service may not decrease overall missed primary care appointments. And it just goes to show that very simple interventions sometimes uh, are not likely to be effective when you're dealing with very complex problems. And as I mentioned, missed appointments are not as, something, are not as simple as ease of transportation, despite what our survey data may show. I imagine, and from personal experience with my patients, who have missed appointments when they're coming to see me, there's a lot more complexity and moving parts to their life than just f securing transportation. Yeah, I think that's a really good way of putting it. Uh, how you mentioned that we're trying to boil down a complex problem into a simple fix. Mm -hmm. Doesn't always work. Yeah, so there it goes. Well, Ashley, thanks for a great show. Let's move on to my favorite part of the episode. It's the Good Stuff segment, where we're talking about what we are reading about. Ashley, what is catching your eye this week? So I uh, saw something posted online this week about a, a recent study that was published in the Journal of Urology. And this is specifically about cyclists. So apparently there's been some concern that cyclists, male cyclists specifically, uh, may have some 
sexual problems, possibly as a direct result of their cycling activities. As you can imagine, there's friction and there's things going on where you'd rather them not go on and uh, people are concerned about that. So this study was published. It's the largest comparative study to date exploring the associations of cycling as well as bike and road characteristics with sexual and urinary function. And this was using validated uh, questionnaires. So essentially, this was a multinational study, a cross-section of three athletic groups. They took cyclists, swimmers, and runners uh, because they wanted to be comparing cyclists with other people who were also physically active. And then they divided the cyclists into like heavy cyclists. So these are people who are like cycling for more than two years, more than three times per week, averaging more than 25 miles a day, and then a low intensity group. And in general, what they found was that when compared to swimmers and runners, cyclists' sexual and urinary health was comparable. Although apparently some cyclists were maybe more prone to urethral strictures. But good thing to know is that high intensity cyclists had overall better erectile function scores than the low intensity cyclists. And bike and road characteristics appeared to not have any impact. So they're talking about the seats and the angles and all sorts of things. Um, but if you're, if you're a cyclist who stands more than 20% of the time instead of being in your seat, that did reduce the odds of having genital numbness. So that was kind of interesting. And Karen, uh, word on the street is that you do a lot of cycling, so you just might be okay. I will ride my bike standing up with glee. Thank you, Ashley, for that. <clears throat> uh, this might be the first time, actually, that our good stuff is somewhat aligned in the sense that we have a common theme about transportation. And um, the, the good stuff I came across actually fits with the article that I covered, which also may be a first. So I was reading about, despite the disappointing results of the trial that we covered on ride sharing, <clears throat> Uber plans to launch a service to help patients get to their doctor's office. Now this is not a free rideshare service, this will actually be a paid for rideshare service, but it can be scheduled through the doctor's office by the receptionist or by their staffers. People can book it for immediate pickup or 30 days in advance, and it doesn't have to be done with a smartphone as a consequence. So a way to tap into a population for Uber's bottom line, as well as they're proposing that it may help more vulnerable populations who are unable to afford a smartphone, perhaps, or may not be able to know how to use it, just ask Dr. Manuk's office to book you your Uber next time you need to get to her office. Well, that sounds like a great plan, except that I am still waiting for Uber to make it over to Trenton, Ontario. Well, we waited with bated breath there, Ashley. <laughs> Thank you again for joining us on the show. We always a pleasure to have you. We love having you on here, and uh, hopefully you'll be able to join us soon. Bye. The Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. You can read more at healthydebate.ca slash roundstable, follow us on Twitter at Roundstable, or on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundstablepodcast. The Rounds Table would not be possible without our fantastic team of on-air and behind-the-scenes members. Thank you to our producer, Emily Hughes, audio editor, Emilio Garcia-Flores, communications director, Anthony Maher, segment developer Shaliza Halani, and faculty mentor and founder of The Rounds Table, Amol Verma. I am your weekly host, Kieran Quinn. Join us next week for an irreverent discussion of the latest medical research, because who knows what they have in store for us. 